Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redeemer Church. We pray that as you listen to this message, that your heart would be softened, your ears would be opened, and your affections for Jesus would be stirred. We pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would look more like Jesus and know Him more as we strive to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family together in Wichita Falls. message today, although my wife continually informs me that every time I preach, it's a little bit different. So um, uh, you guys bear along with me, uh, because this is going to be a little bit more more theological, and I have to be careful. I'm wired in a very theological direction, and I have to continually kind of rein that back, uh, because this is, not a, this is not a theology course. This is not uh, something, but sometimes it's difficult to talk about a passage without talking about the theological framework behind that. And so I'm going to do a little bit of that today uh, to set the words of Jesus, hopefully in the context, uh, as, you, as Adam read there, you can see that d- Jesus's disciples did not have the context, which comes from the later New Testament that I'm going to share with you today. And they had confusion. They struggled with what Jesus was going to say to them. In fact, Jesus noted their need for some more information. And, and this text starts in verse 12. Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. You're not ready yet. I can't tell you everything that you need to know, but let me give you some information. Um, So it's possible to take something simple sometimes and make it more complicated, perhaps maybe, than it needs to be. So, for example, 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. That sounds simple enough, right? Um, But you can describe that as a mathematical equation of addition in base 10 using positive integers uh, and expressed in Arabic numerals, right, uh, to demonstrate a 200% increase. Um, But that's not normally how we talk about that. But you can also take something which maybe appears a little bit more complex uh, and simplify it for someone to state it, give them them a summary that they can walk away with and say, okay, I get that. So if you take one times one times one equals one, that sounds a little bit more complicated than the addition part of that. And you could could really summarize that by saying that if if you multiply any number by one, regardless of how many times you do it, you're going to end up with the same number that you started with, right? You can simplify it. So I'm going to be doing a little bit of both of these things today. I'm going to be complicating and simplifying, I think, this passage, because I'm going to talk a little bit about some theology behind it, but hopefully we're going to get to the point where we've simplified, we've kind of synthesized what Jesus is talking about so that we walk away with just a good, a good gist this morning. Um, So let me just remind you uh, about verse 13 there. It says that when the spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And some of what I'm talking about today are some of those things which came later in the New Testament, which the Holy Spirit was revealing to them. Now, this text that we, that we, 
that Adam read for us this morning, if it does focus on the work of the Trinity. So I want to talk about the Trinity just a little bit this morning. Because we're talking about what Jesus is doing, we're talking about what the Father's doing, we're talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so uh, they're all mentioned together. And so this is just an opportune place for us just to kind of take a moment and re- review this basic idea of the Trinity, that there's one God, and this one God exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's pretty simple. And uh, people, however, in the world around us, people who are outside of a Christian framework, and particularly if you come from an Islamic or a Muslim background, you're going to struggle with this idea of Trinity more so because in our world, one plus one plus one equals three, right? That's how, that's how that is expressed. And let me, let me suggest to you two things about the Trinity, about understanding the Trinity this morning. And the, and the first is, I would say that if you're going to use math, I would say that one times one times one equals one is a better mathematical formula. If you're going to think about God in terms of math, then one plus one plus one equals three. Uh, but I would, I, would, I would readily say to you that I, I think math is a difficult journey to go when it comes to a discussion about God. Um, Uh, If we assume that God only operates in base 10 with positive integers, and that's the only way that we can talk about God or have a conversation about God, we've probably already unnecessarily narrowed that discussion to a point where it's not going to make sense. I don't think you can get to God through math, no matter how, how you approach that. The other thing I would suggest to you is that the doctrine... Of the Trinity, the purpose of the doctrine of Trinity is not to define God because God exists as a being that we're not able to define, all right? The doctrine of the Trinity is a marker of the complexity of God. It's there to remind us when we talk about God, one God existing as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, it's a way for us to mark down the fact that God is a more complicated being than we are in the same way that. You are more complicated than a one-celled organism, right? So we we understand one-celled organisms. The average person has somewhere between 30 and 40 trillion cells in them. And it's not possible for the one-celled organism in their world, in their understanding, to understand a being like us who operate with 30 to 40 trillion cells. The, The gap there is just too far apart. In the same way, the gap between the God who spoke all of creation into existence is too great for us to really grasp who he is or understand who he is or define who he is. And the doctrine of the Trinity, therefore, just stands as a marker to say God is complex, but he's real. Um, So we, we teach about the three members of the Trinity, each being God, each being equal, and sometimes you'll see a, a triangle, an equilateral, equilateral, whatever you say that, a triangle with three sides, all right, as representing God because you have three equal sides but one triangle, and, and that just kind of summarizes for us this idea that we believe that God, one God, exists as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Now, let me complicate that again for you a little bit. Because when we get into the New Testament, this God, who, this one God who exists in Father and Son and Holy Spirit, 
when it comes to the divine plan of salvation, we have the Son, what we call the second part of that trinity, who has voluntarily submitted himself completely to the Father. So although he's just as much God as the Father is, and just as equal in his Godhead as the Father is, he has completely, willingly, voluntarily submitted himself to the Father, so that when earlier in John, when Cody was preaching through those first six chapters, we had Jesus saying things like, I don't say anything that the Father doesn't tell me to say. And when we get to the end of his life, and we're close to the, here in, in the 16th chapter of John, when we get to the, 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 the part, we're actually in that last night here in 16, and later on this night, uh, although that's going to move out for a couple of chapters there, Jesus is going to pray. He says, not my will be done but your will be done. Jesus has completely submitted himself to the Father, even though he is equally God. And not to be outdone in the divine plan of salvation, the Holy Spirit has submitted himself in a way so that he's so focused his ministry uh, uh, for us in the New Testament that it is absolutely focused on Jesus. Look what Jesus says in verse 14 again. He says, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. And so the Holy Spirit has dedicated his ministry. What the Holy Spirit does in our lives, does in the context of this church, is he spends all of his time pointing to Jesus. And so while we talk about the Trinity, we teach the Trinity, we teach a God who is one with three equal expressions of God and Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, in the divine plan of salvation, we see that Scripture teaches us that they form, that they perform unique roles willingly, voluntarily, in the service of, 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 of really our salvation. And so what the Holy Spirit does, everything the Holy Spirit does points to Jesus. And what that practically means for us, guys, is that the Holy Spirit becomes the presence of Christ in us. Now, hold on to that thought because that is the square that Jesus is talking about behind this is he's, He's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, because keep in mind, the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. He's, he's talking to them about an indwelling Holy Spirit that they don't have yet, and that's part of this confusion in this text. He will guide you to all truth. And all truth here doesn't mean that all truth is related to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't, it doesn't mean the, 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 the truth that uh, uh, is the Holy Spirit truth as, a ho as opposed to what Jesus considers to be the truth or what the Father considers to be the truth. Because again, there's just one God there. They're all on the same page. Um, uh, but it does practically mean for us that there are some things that the Holy Spirit is never, ever going to do. Never, ever. Okay, and let me give you three things that the Holy Spirit is never, ever going to do. And the first of those is, is the Holy Spirit is never, ever going to exalt who he is over who Jesus is. So if you're ever somewhere in church or somewhere, a Bible study somewhere, and the Holy Spirit becomes more important than Jesus in the preaching and teaching there, let me just say to you out loud, that isn't coming from the Holy Spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit's ministry. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The second thing in there, the Holy Spirit will never, never, ever lead anyone away from faith in Jesus. Everything the Holy Spirit does is pointing people back to Jesus. As Jesus said here in this passage, the Holy Spirit is going to glorify him. 
He's moving people with the, from the conviction of sin all the way through the moment he comes in and indwells them as a new believer, a new follower of Jesus Christ. He's moving people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so any teaching you hear that is directing people to trust something other than Jesus is not coming from the Spirit of God. It's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's got some other source out there. It's not coming from the Holy Spirit. So anything that teaches that Jesus is a way, but not the way to get into heaven, to get into a relationship with God the Father, that is not coming from the Holy Spirit. The third thing that the Holy Spirit will never, ever do is to contradict, contradict the truth about Jesus that's already revealed in Scripture. So keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is the one who has inspired John to write this gospel. He's, in, he's inspired the rest of the authors of the New Testament to write the materials, the books that we have in the New Testament. And, and if you're keeping a running score on that, there's 27 books in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is really the author of all of those. He used individuals in the New Testament, and those individuals' names are, if we know who they are, they're written on the top of those books. But the authorship of those books comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict. He's not going to tell us something about who Jesus is or what he does in those books and then come back later and contradict himself what he said earlier. It's not ever going to happen. So there is no new truth about Jesus. Now, God, I want you to hear me carefully when I say these things, guys. There is no new truth about Jesus, and there is no alternate truth about Jesus. It's not like there's a Jesus A and Jesus B, and you can pick the Jesus that you want to believe in. There is just the Jesus who is revealed in the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just, just say to you out loud, there are some other ancient non-Christian stories about Jesus that exist. Now, sometimes you'll see these referred to as the lost books of the Bible. You'll see them referred to as the uh, 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 Gnostic Christian uh, documents, okay? Gnostic Christian scripture. Uh, but let me tell you up front that, re that referring to uh, anything Gnostic, Gnostic is not Christian any more than Buddhism is Christian or Hinduism is Christian. Gnosticism is not Christian. There is no such thing as a Gnostic Christian. There are Gnostic documents which talk about Jesus who reveal other stories about Jesus. But let me just say to you out loud, these are strange stories. Jesus did not zap the little boy when he was six and he made a clay pigeon and the little boy broke his clay pigeon. He didn't zap that other little boy. He did not, uh, uh, he did not turn all of the kids in the neighborhood into goats when they refused to play with him that day and hide them in an oven uh, away from their parents. He did not uh, slay a dragon in Egypt uh, these weird, fantastical stories that you find in these other documents, that's not an alternative truth about Jesus. That's just some stories that people made up. There is one truth, the whole truth, uh, and as Jesus says here, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he's done that for us in the New Testament. Now, Cody said last week, that the Holy Spirit was the power for our incredible mission. And, and, and in that, he is both the power for our mission, but he's also the truth that makes our mission run. The Holy Spirit is the author of truth. Um, and Jesus is bringing the Holy Spirit into this discussion with his disciples uh, because he wants them, he wanted them to see the resource that they have 
before he began to talk to them seriously about the challenge that they were fixing to face, all right? That's the context that we're going into here. That's why Jesus has spent all of this time talking about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. It's to prepare them for what was to come. And um, uh, he starts in verse 16 again. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. And then you can see beginning in 17, this discussion, the disciples are trying to figure out what in the world it is that Jesus is talking about. And, and the big idea here is that Jesus is going to be gone, but still present. And that's possible because of the Trinity. All right? So that's why we started with the discussion of the Trinity. Jesus is gone, but present. And the big challenge, the immediately challenge that's in front of these disciples is the fact that the next day, Jesus is going to get crucified. The very next day, Jesus is going to die. He's been trying to prepare them for that. In fact, he's been talking about it for three chapters here in the Gospel of John. And if you go back and you read the other three Gospels, which we call the Synoptic Gospels, he's been talking about it for more than just this last week of his life. He's been talking about it for a while. But they're struggling with it. Um, they're, they're still not getting it. And you can see the confusion in the disciples in this passage. Now you see me, now you don't. I go to be the Father, but you're going to see me again. Um, and and I, I, this idea of Jesus being gone but being present, I think, has two reference points that I want to talk about. Uh, two things that, are, again, are developed later on in the New Testament that the disciples here don't, don't really grasp what's going on in these. One of these is the resurrection and the other is the second coming of Jesus. And both of those are important for our faith. And I want to talk to you about both of those. So let me, let me begin by saying that the immediate issue here at hand in, in this passage, he's, it, it, Jesus is talking about his resurrection. He's talking about the fact that he's going to die tomorrow. They're going to watch him get crucified, which is a horrible way to die. And they're going to be absolutely traumatized. And, and, but then, three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. And he's already told them it was going to be in three days I'll rise. They already have that information. But like names with me, I can't get names to stick in my head, that information doesn't stick with them and they don't get it. Um, but there's also a second application. That second application is this period of time when we're waiting as believers in Christ for Jesus to come again. But I want to talk about that in a second. Let's talk about the resurrection. Now, most people do not object to Jesus as being a teacher, a spiritual teacher. Oh, it's great that Jesus was a spiritual teacher. He's a spiritual guide, maybe a, a guru of some kind. But what they, what they object to, what they reject, really, firmly, is this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. But let me just say to you guys that the resurrection is at the very core of our faith. It's not, a, it's not a subsidiary doctrine. It's not something that is optional that we can, we can tag on uh, if we want to. It's, it's not a bonus doctrine of any kind. It's very at the, at the absolute standing. It's not optional if you're a follower of Jesus Christ to not believe in the resurrection. That's not an option that's on the table. There are five things that you have to be, believe. If you, if, if, what is the minimum? What is the minimum of what I have to believe in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ? There are five things that sit at the very core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have to believe, secondly, that he is both fully God and fully man. Thirdly, you have to believe that he died on the cross for our sins, right, to pay the penalty for our sins. You have to believe 
believe, number four, that he physically, bodily rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And number five, you have to believe that he's physically, bodily coming back to both retrieve his bride, the church, and to judge the world at the end of time. Those are the five core things uh, about who Jesus is that you have to believe um, uh, in order to be a Christian. And I'm not going to talk about all five of those this morning. I'm going to stick with what this passage is affecting, and that's the resurrection and the second coming. So let's talk about the resurrection in a little more detail. This is what Paul says about the importance of Jesus rising from the dead. And this is in 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter, long chapter, is all about the resurrection. Let me just read you a few verses there, starting in verse 16. Uh, Paul says, if the dead are not raised then not even Christ has been raised. Now, all non-believers agree with this statement. They're, they're saying that's exactly where we're at. Nobody gets raised. Nobody comes back from the dead. Therefore, Jesus didn't come back from the dead either. That's their philosophical stance. But Paul goes on. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, people, if, the, if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, you are still in your sin. Your sins haven't been paid for just by Jesus dying on the cross, is what Paul is saying here. And then he says in verse 18, those who have fallen asleep, that's a metaphor, right? A euphemism for died. All those who were Christians who had died before us, he says, have perished in their sins, have perished. If in Christ, he says, we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. If we just have Jesus as a teacher, as a mentor, as a spiritual guide, if he's just here for this life only, Paul says, it's not worth it. That's not what Jesus came to do. Because God, why, why can't we just believe that Jesus was a spiritual guide? Well, if you can't believe what Jesus said when he said, I am going to rise from the dead, what is it you think he's guiding you to? Paul says this because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the basis for our hope that God will one day also raise us up from the dead physically. Guys, God's plan of salvation as it's revealed in Scripture is not just a blood sacrifice on the cross to cover our sins, but it's a bringing back of life into us that we lost in the Garden of Eden. Sin and death have to be conquered to reverse the curse. Jesus alludes to an Old Testament passage of the resurrection here in our text in John 16, and it it's not clear, but it's there. And there aren't a lot of these Old Testament resurrection passages. And I thought it was ironic that uh, uh, Cody was having me preach this weekend uh, because they were probably expecting a baby. And then Jesus uses having a baby as an illustration. And I showed that to Stephanie last week on my way out the door. And we, we had a laugh together, right? Uh, and Jesus' illustration is that pregnancy produces pain. And then it produces new life. And then it's going to produce joy. And he's not just relating to life experience here. He, he's actually paraphrasing Isaiah 26. Let me just read part of Isaiah 26 to you. It says, Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We, we writhed and we were, we were giving birth to the wind. And we have accomplished no deliverance on the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. 
and their bodies shall rise. And you who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 26, 17 through 19. Jesus was going to die the next day, but he would rise from the dead. And after this traumatic, this, this traumatic thing, this seeing Jesus, seeing their Messiah, seeing their, this person that they, that they loved and they had invested three of their life years with, seeing him die on the cross and being traumatized by that, they were going to see him after he rose from the dead, and then they were going to have joy that could not be taken away from them. We can't treat the doctrine of the resurrection as a take-it-or-leave-it doctrine. It is at the very core of what we believe about salvation, but it also has implications for the end of time because there's a close correlation between Jesus rising from the dead and what Paul says is he is the first of those who will follow him, the first fruits, right, of those who follow him being raised from the dead. And that's going to happen when Jesus comes back the second time. So look at verse 22 again. He says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now this promise is also for us today, guys. We're in this period of time in between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. When we're, Jesus is gone, but he's, he's still present through the, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But but we're longing to see him. We're waiting for him to come back. And there is this promise when Jesus says, I will see you again, guys. And that promise is a promise for us. But unlike the three days when Jesus was in the grave, we do have this indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us. We do have the very presence of Christ then with us in his absence. Uh, and this is really the bigger idea about the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about in John 16. Is this idea that, that he, as, as Cody read it last week, it's better for us, Jesus said, that I go away so that the, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Helper can come and be with you. Um, so we're experiencing kind of a new version of what Jesus illustrated with this pregnant woman. We have sorrows and troubles now. Life is not great. The world is in chaos. There's a lot of chaos in our country right now. Uh, we have struggles. We have things that are not going right in our life. But there is this inexpressible joy that is waiting on the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus picks up his bride, us, the church, that will be the consummation of our salvation. Now, Cody mentioned three doctrinal concepts he asked you to write down last week. And I know you wrote those down, so pull those out of your Bible now. Okay, and look at those. Okay, it was uh, uh, justification and sanctification and glorification. And again, to summarize what, what Cody told you last week, if you didn't get the definitions written down, justification is when we come to faith in Christ and we do take advantage of his blood sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins. All right, that's justification. And, and sanctification is this process then when we, we move away from sin and we, move, when we mo move more into the image of Christ in our lives, we're becoming more like who Jesus was. And glorification, the last part of that, okay, glorification is the final stage. It's the consummation of the salvation that God has given to us. Glorification is, is the part of our salvation when we experience everything that Jesus experienced when he rose from the dead, including a new body, built for eternity.
So um, listen, listen to what Paul says. In, I'm in 1 Corinthians 15 again, but at the end of the chapter. He says in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What does he mean, perishable? Guys, let me just say this. You can't keep a banana forever. And if you live in Texas, you can't keep a banana more than two days because of the heat that we live in. It's perishable. It decays. And, and, and Paul says, what is going to decay, what is going to pass away, cannot inherit eternity, right? But he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die before this happens. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we won't all be dead when it happens. So we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. For when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass that saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Salvation, guys, in Christ is not living on a cloud in a, as a disembodied spirit with a fake white robe playing a harp. That's not our future. That's not the salvation that God promised to us. Um, it's, salvation is death being swallowed up in victory. It's having a new body that's built for eternity, a resurrected body, just like the one that Jesus got when he rose from the grave. And on that day, Isaiah 26, it will be completely fulfilled because the earth is going to give birth to the dead at the command of Christ when the trumpet sounds and sin and death are defeated forever. And guys, this last part is going to take place. It's going to happen when Jesus comes back again. That's what we call the second coming. And that's why the second coming is as important to our faith. In verse 18, it says, the disciples ask, what does he mean by a little while? Now, it has been 2,000 years, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. But we don't know, like the disciples, we don't know what he meant when he said, a little while. Now, I'm not God's timekeeper. And, and the truth is, God doesn't operate inside of time like we do. Uh, so I don't know when the second coming is going to happen. I just know I want to be ready. And, and, and as we come to a close here this morning, guys, I, 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 what, what I want for your takeaway to be is I want you to kind of think about this doctrinal background where I've complicated some of this passage by talking about the theology behind it. And I want to say to you that, that when you talk to someone who's far about God, about the Trinity, don't get stuck in the weeds. Don't be afraid to simplify that down and say that's just a marker for the complexity of God and we don't understand it. I can't spell it out for you. I can't give you the science or the physics about how that would work. It, it, it's too far beyond, God is too far beyond who we are for me to explain that to you because I don't know. 
But when, when you have an opportunity to talk to someone who has doubts about the resurrection, let me just say to you, pull out your Bible and, and, and complicate it for them. Show them what Paul teaches about why the resurrection is necessary. Show them that our hope in God is a resurrected body in the future. That's actually what the New Testament is promising to us. Complicate it a little bit for them by showing them in Scripture what it is that we believe. Now, in Revelation 22:20, which is the next to the last verse in the Bible, the last verse is a grace to you verse, right? That's the last verse in the Bible. But the next to the last verse in the Bible, in Revelation 22:20, Jesus says, "I am coming soon." And John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, is the John who, who is, the, is the writer for the book of Revelation. John's response in that verse is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And guys, that is the prayer of the church. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Let's, let's pray. Let's just take a moment and, and pray together.